Tonight's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 14, 22 to, 20, or to 33. <clears throat> Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Spencer Hall again, and uh, Doug will be back with us next week. On a trip recently to Indiana, my mother and sister were going up to help um, cousin uh, as she was having a baby, uh, having four kiddos uh, in the house already. Uh, they were helping uh, take care of them during the birth. And, and as they traveled up, uh, they were listening to one of these, uh, these novels about Jason Bourne. Uh, you may have read uh, one of these thrillers. But it, it's one of these where you've got multiple plot lines going in a lot of different directions and a lot of action, all these names that are hard to, to categorize and remember. And so they're going along, and, and they're thinking, okay, we're about a half an hour in uh, to this story, and it's not really making much sense. Um, and then about 45 minutes, and, and they were thinking, okay, well, I thought that guy died, and what's going on over here? What they realized was, as they looked down, was the CD player was on shuffle. And so, you know, as we enter the text tonight, we, we've been in Matthew 4, and we're zooming ahead to Matthew 14. We, we missed a lot of different things, and so I think it might be appropriate to kind of ground ourselves just a little bit more in the context um, here and to do that fast forward. So uh, we've been, as you may recall, last week, uh, Matthew 4, Jesus was talking about, uh, or Jesus, uh, Doug was talking about uh, Jesus... <laughs> We're off, off to a stellar start. Uh, Doug was talking about how Jesus um, was teaching the disciples to fish, uh, was teaching them how to proclaim the kingdom of God, the reign of God. And, um, and then, of course, uh, as, as you know, in Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, really Jesus unpacking what it means to, to walk as a disciple and some of the principles, some of the things to be thinking about. As you may remember, Doug has really grounded our study uh, in Matthew, thinking about uh, Matthew writing to these early, early Jewish believers uh, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So in, in 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Then in 8 through 10, really, Jesus does a lot of different miracles. 
And he really shows, uh, he announces in some physical ways the coming of the kingdom. And then thereafter, some of the uh, opposition begins to mount. He teaches some, he heals some. And and then, grounding ourselves in in this specific chapter, uh, we've come to a point where uh, John the Baptist is killed. He's beheaded. And, And Jesus hears this, and he withdraws. He probably wants some time to process, some time to pray. But the crowds follow him. They want to hear him. They want to know him. And so uh, he has compassion. He's a shepherd. He he, uh, teaches them. And then ultimately he feeds them. And that's the feeding of the 5,000. As many of you know, uh, it was probably more like a feeding of 15 or 20,000. Tens of thousands of people. They only counted the men back in those days. So uh, feeding this huge number of people. And so that's where we are when we arrive uh, at, at Jesus sending the disciples on. And so I think in, in keeping with um, what we've been looking at with uh, this study of Matthew, we're going to be asking tonight, what do we find out about being a disciple, about following Jesus from this passage? And, and I hope that this is something that's fresh for you as, as it has been for me. It's a familiar text uh, but it's been, um, I think, for many of us that have opened it up and studied it this week has, has been uh, something new that the Lord's given us. Uh, the first thing I think that we see just kind of walking through inductively as we open this text is that Jesus sends his disciples into storms. And he, he does that sometimes in a really pub- puzzling way. When you think about it, Jesus at this time, he has just fed 5,000 or he's fed 15 or 20,000 people. He's fed uh, these folks. He's he's at kind of a height of popularity, so to speak. If we go over to John 6.15, which is is chronicling the same feeding, uh, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they're ready to make him king. Now, if you're one of the disciples here, and we're, again, asking, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, yes, this is exactly what I've been hoping for. We've got a guy who's, who's teaching, uh, his, his message is latching on, people are excited, they're ready to make him king. And this is, a, remember, if you're a disciple, this is an oppressed people. This is a people who have been oppressed by the Romans. They're longing for national independence. They have their hopes Uh, at freeing themselves. And the disciples, uh, in all likelihood, were thinking this way too, on some level. And so uh, when Jesus is gaining this popularity, they're probably thinking, okay, we've got a national savior to free us from the Romans. Now, having lived in Tibet for two years, I can tell you that there's not a day that goes by among these oppressed folks that they're not thinking, they're not longing, they're not aching for that independence. So you get to this height you know, that Jesus is in popularity and, and power. And instead of capitalizing on that, he dismisses the crowds and he sends his disciples on ahead of him. He gets rid of them. He sends them on ahead. He sends them out into the sea where there's a storm. Now, you know, it's not just that he calls the disciples into the storm, but he calls them from this mountaintop and sends them into a storm. This would be, you know, probably feel about the same way as if you had, you know, a, a master director that has this uh, team of actors, and they make this amazing movie. And uh, they sell out the theaters the first weekend, and they've got Oscar nominations. And the director just says, "Um, I think we're going to shut everything down. I mean, that's the kind of shock that the the disciples must have felt going from this high point than going out into the storm. 
And, and this is only the start, because the next few sermons, he's going to be talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The crowds are going to scatter. So it's not just this storm, it's the ones that are going to come thereafter too. So again, I think, um, you know, as we, as we look at this text and the first thing, seeing Jesus, he, he sends his disciples out intentionally into the, into the storm. One of the questions that we could ask is, are you experiencing that kind of disappointment tonight in any area of your life? Where Jesus has sent you into a storm and you have no idea why. It, it, it's, it's just shocking. It's puzzling. Things may have seemed clear a few months ago or a few years ago. And now you say, okay, I'm in the midst of a storm. Or perhaps, you know, in some, of your, some areas of your life or, or your life in general, you're, you're sitting on the shore talking to Jesus and not wanting to go out into the sea. You know, if I'm honest with myself, I, I think I'm there in some ways. You know, I'd like to bask in that glow of being a part of that team that's just fed tens of thousands. Is he calling you into the storm potentially tonight? Are you listening? You know, here's where I'm at. My life's been comparatively easy the last year. Uh, kids are finally sleeping through the night. Um, the business uh, that I work in, um, been there for four years, and, and the first few years, a lot more work, and it's kind of gotten to a place of sustainability. Emily and I have a bunch of good friends right close around us. I, I don't have a desire to change. So, you know, when the Spirit starts prompting and Emily starts talking about adopting a child, fostering to adopt, my knee-jerk reaction is no. I like it how it's at right now. So maybe you're, you're there, or maybe you're in the midst of the storm. You know, we ha- often have this idea, or at least I have this idea, that, that Jesus is one who persistently and undyingly loves us, and that no matter what we do, he loves us. And I think that this invades my consciousness sometimes, perhaps it does yours as well, that I start to think, well, if he's calling me to something really hard or to something really uncertain, or my stomach really starts churning, that that's probably the Holy Spirit saying no. And I think we see from the text, that's not necessarily the case. Now, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you, and he may be saying no, but um, Jesus calls them to some pretty difficult things. He calls us into the storm. Well, I think the second thing that we see in line with that is Jesus brings the storm, and he uses that to show us some of our deepest held beliefs. You know, Doug, oftentimes when he's speaking about faith and about the way that we process things. You know, we've got an upper level in our home, and then we've got the basement. And the basement is kind of where we've got those, those deep-held uh, beliefs, those things that are even just kind of in our subconscious. We, it's really hard to root them out. It's really hard to even identify them at times. But as, as Jesse was talking about, Jesus uses this experience on the sea to really shock the disciples, to, to, to show them in some ways their deepest held beliefs, those things that are down in the basement that are hard to get to. Now, they've been with Jesus for some time, and they've seen him call in the sea. You know, Matthew 8, he's uh, out there with them, and, and he calms the sea. They were just sent again into a storm by him. They were commanded to go. They were sent off. 
So the logical conclusion, again, if we're up in that upper level where you know rational thoughts are perhaps, the logical conclusion would be to assume that Jesus is controlling this, he's aware of this, um, and in all likelihood that this is him coming to see them. But their natural gut-level response is, no, this is a ghost. And, and they cry out. This is, you know, this is 12 grown men who are fishermen freaking out. Um, they probably rode for something like seven, eight, nine hours. They're probably exhausted. They've just you know, had this amazing experience coming off that high. Now they're rowing. They may be going backward. You know, if you uh, look at the way uh, uh, the uh, weather patterns are, you know, when you have a western gale go across uh, there, you may be going backwards. And so it's not surprising that they're in the middle of the lake not having made much progress. So they're probably exhausted. And at their core, I think they weren't sure that Jesus was powerful enough to protect them. They weren't sure that he would be there for them in a tight spot. Really, ultimately, they weren't sure that he was trustworthy. And, and you know, again, I can relate to this. Um, we live in Park Ridge, as many of you know, and we feel called to be there in that part of the city, in, in large part to just be there for the kids, to be able to enjoy spending time with them and, and, and try to be a, a positive presence in their life. Last weekend, I was, I was pretty tired on a Saturday afternoon. Um, the work week had been tiring, and I was taking care of Andrew and Caitlin and Amy for, for some of that morning, and I had been out mowing the lawn and uh, had a few more projects that afternoon, and, and one of the kids walked up. And he just wanted to engage with me. He wanted to, to talk and play and do some different things. And again, logically, if I was walking through things, I'd say, okay, God's called me here. This uh, uh, kid from the neighborhood is coming over. This is his providence. He's, he's going to be working in the midst of this. Even though I'm tired, he's going to supply the energy that I need. But my deepest held belief wasn't that, and it didn't reflect that. I, I just felt angry. Um, you know, it, it's not pretty, but I, I felt like I had to, to be able to do everything. I had to keep things in control. I had to be able to come through for him and for my family, and for people at work, and for people in church. I, I felt like I had to manage everything. I had to be in control. So what came out was anger. He uses those storms in our lives, I think, to expose those deepest uh, beliefs. And I think in parsing this out with Emily and, and some other friends, uh, you know, it's, it's really that lie that if, if I can't pull things together, if I'm not in control, if I'm not the one that can come through for, for each person, that I don't have value. If I don't succeed, I don't have value in life. I think if I'm honest, I, I could even go far to say is I, I think sometimes I'm worthless if I don't come through for people. That's the lie. That's, that's the basement um, for me as I get into that storm. What might God be showing you in the midst of the storm? What deep-seated beliefs might you be clinging to as you think through what he might be revealing, what God might be up to in the midst of this storm that he's put in your life or a storm that you've had in the past? You know, if you're not in the midst of feeling overwhelmed now or sense that you're in a storm, I think there are other clues that we can look at. You know, where do you feel anxiety 
think most of us keep our anxieties hidden from others on some level, and, and sometimes even our closest friends, sometimes even our community. Is there a place where you're feeling anxious? Or places where conversations make you feel uncomfortable? You know, sometimes when we have conversation with, with folks, um, we have this, this feeling in our gut that, um, that's hard to describe, but that we know that, um, that the Lord may be bringing some, something up uh, in us. Is there something uh, that you can discern along those lines tonight? These are deep-seated beliefs, really, that it's, it's in the Lord's goodness that he puts us in the storm to show us those things. I think as we walk through that, I think the third thing that comes up is he puts us in these storms, he shows us those deep-seated beliefs, but in the midst of that, he helps us to grow. That's the good news, that nothing that he puts us through is going to, le- going to be left unused. Everything that, that comes through God's hand and providence, he uses Peter grows in the storm. The other disciples, they grow in the storm. At the end, they say for the very first time, you're the son of God. They not only see their deep-seated beliefs, their fears, but they also recognize the Savior in a way that they had never recognized prior. And just two chapters later, Peter is going to go on and affirm that, yes, indeed, Jesus is the Messiah and that uh, his faith will be built from there. So he helps us to grow in the midst of that. It's, it's this combination of experiencing this deep, visceral fear. It's taking them. You know, if you're a fisherman, uh, are there any more fears that you can have that you're out in the middle of the lake and you've got this storm, you cannot control it, and you've got a ghost that you've got to deal with as well? I mean, you know, and, and he does that not only uh, this time. He's done that before. So he, he's, he's taking them there multiple times. But in the midst of that, he's gracious to be there with us. He's gracious to be there each time with the disciples. You know, here's the reality. We don't naturally choose situations that terrify us. You know, if you do, then I'd love to talk. Um, I've not met anybody that that they just run towards terror. Um, But he puts us there that we may feel that fear, that we may feel those deepest fears, so that he may come in and show us truth. Now, they cry out in fear, how does Jesus respond as he's coming toward them? Without a context of the Old Testament, uh, he responds in kind of a weird way. Wouldn't you expect him to say, guys, it's me, Jesus. You don't recognize me, it's me, Jesus. He says, take heart, it is I. But really... um, and the ESV does a you know fine job in translating that, but um, when we look at the at the Greek, it's really it's the same phrase that we see in Exodus three. It's the same phrase that we see God describing Himself as I am. So it would be very valid to say he, Jesus is saying, "Take heart, I am." So He's literally saying, "Take heart, God is right here with you. Take heart, the one who parted the Red Sea is with you. Take heart." The one who hovered over the waters at creation is here with you. He takes them to the place of deepest fear and then he meets them there. So here's another question of our view of discipleship. Does it surprise us that Jesus takes us, takes those who are closest to him to a place of their deepest fears? 
Does it surprise us that he does that repeatedly? Do we expect, do we anticipate that that's part of his plan for us, that we may know him better? I know that's something that's been challenging for me this week, is, is that's not you know, in my set of expectations for most of life. So what do we make of what Peter does? You know, there's a lots, of, lots of different uh, thoughts, theories, opinions, and, and I don't think that we can say definitively uh, what's going on here. Some commentators feel like Matthew's positioning Peter as a man of great faith. Others think that he's showing Peter to be foolish, but Jesus to be amazing and still saving in the midst of, of such foolishness. Um, others say that Matthew is focusing on how we need to have just a little bit of faith and God will do more. And, and I guess here's what, where I settle on this. I settle on the idea that Peter knows that he needs Jesus. We could look at it and we could say that he's foolish, but I think he looks on the, out on the water and he's not sure what he sees. I think he clings to the hope that it's Jesus and he knows that that's his only hope. And I think that makes him a desperate man. And I think he bets everything on it. He knows if it's a ghost, they're in trouble. They're having trouble with the storm as it is. If they get assailed by a ghost, they're not going to make it. So he might as well throw himself on the hope that it's Jesus. And he does. And in that sense, I think we can follow Peter. You know, for most of us, when we look at our lives, when we look at what we long for the Lord to accomplish, whether that's in our family or our community or uh, those around us at work, I think we know we don't have much of a chance if we don't have Jesus. There's no chance that I love those kids, that I keep even living in Park Ridge if I don't have Jesus. You know, we had conflicting gangs have a gunfire fight on the street in front of our house at 3 p.m. on Easter afternoon. We had a car thief barreling down our tiny street at 50 miles an hour before T-boning an SUV at our intersection a few days ago. The kids who enter our home day to day have seen their mothers turn tricks as prostitutes. They've seen their little sisters beaten by their fathers and their uncles. They've had their grandmothers intentionally try to starve them. And they've experienced much of society give up on them. So I think the the natural response there is to be desperate. To say, it's not going to happen if we don't have Jesus. I long for us to be like Peter. I hope that we as a congregation experience that sense of desperation. Do I really think that I can manage things and that I can come through for everybody in my own strength? Not a chance. I hope that we live on the reality that we toss ourselves towards Jesus. And I hope that we encourage each other to do the same. So I'd ask tonight, is your hope in Jesus? Or like me, do you try to manage things yourselves oftentimes? Have you bet everything on him? Tonight, are there things that you hear him calling you to do? Perhaps tough decisions to make. Things that you know will call you out of the boat, make you feel uncomfortable. I think that we can gain confidence in this, that that we don't have to get everything right. We step out of the boat, we follow him, we obey, and he sustains us. 
He does not let us fail. We cry out as Peter did, Lord, save me. And he comes to us. He lifts his hand down and he rescues us. Now, does this mean that our business is sure to succeed? No. Does it mean that we will experience strong health? Not necessarily. But it does mean that we'll grow as his disciples. We'll fail, we'll falter, but he'll be there with us. Jesus calls us into the storm to expose our deep-seated beliefs. <laughs>